Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Forest Spirituality with me, Julie Brett. Today I've got an interview for you. It was recorded last year um, well, in, in preparation for um, my new book, Belonging to the Earth, Nature, Spirituality in a Changing World. Um, it's with Christopher Hughes, who is um, a wonderful author from Wales and um, from the Anglesey Druid Order there as well on the Isle of Anglesey. Um, it was amazing talking to him. He has such a wealth of knowledge and um, is doing so many interesting things in his life. Uh, we were recording this during the pandemic, so it's it's about uh, in about June or so, or, Ju- or maybe May in 2021. Um, and uh yeah so you can tell by the context of what we talk about that it is it is in that and uh but um I'm so glad to be able to share it with you today I just had to listen through all of it and it's just such an interesting talk we get into so many different things about storytelling and the land and Welsh traditions and um all of the different things that Christopher does in his life he um was releasing a book called Carried One at the time and it's a, a great book I hope you'll check it out he also contributed to the book through this uh to my book that is um through through this interview um we we added a chapter um to belonging to the earth that came from this talk um i hope you enjoy having listen how are you yeah all right actually not too bad we've had um we've had some more easing of restrictions today so well they've announced it today it's going to happen i think on monday but it still looks like we're, we're probably not going to be able to run our residential course again this year. Oh, it seems that yeah. they, they still want some social distancing. Mm. So we've been watching, you know, watching the guys in South Australia and the English ale. We've been quite envious, really. Yeah, I was, I, I went. I was, Did you go? Yeah. My first oh, interstate trip in, you know, over a year and a half or something. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, brilliant. It's it quite, it quite, it's quite bizarre, isn't it? That, yeah. But we still, we, we really haven't seen anybody. We're, we're seeing the other people who. So there's six of us who run the order here, mm. and we've not seen them since November. Wow. And it's only yeah. now, now that I realise that's seven months. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's, it's so bizarre. But we get to see them tomorrow. Right. So what are you doing we'll tomorrow? To, we're going to Bala tomorrow. Because oh. we tend to have our meetings in Bala mm. because um, it's kind of centrally located between all of the sort of executive committee members. And, um, and of course, it's Bala. I mean, yeah. you know, why not? You know? Well, for those who don't know, listening in, um, tell us about Bala. So, yes, yeah, so Bala <laughs> is the legendary home of Keridwen and her family. So that's where her legend uh, arose. That's where her legend was located within the the Welsh Bardic tradition and within local lore and mythology. So, Mm. and whilst, you know, I live maybe an hour and a quarter maximum away from Bala here on the island of Anglesey. And, you know, I get a sense of Ceridwen wherever I am, you know, that power of sort of awen and inspiration. But there's nothing quite like being in a place that has the very seat of a myth 
that really does something to you somehow. And I remember I was talking to Dave the Bard about it when we were flying over to Australia. And that seems like a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? Mm. Probably, what, two years? And, um, and he was saying the same thing, that it doesn't matter where he is in the world, he has a sense that the hour is flowing, but nothing beats being in that particular location. So it always feels a bit of a pilgrimage, being able to to go to these places. And I feel very fortunate that we kind of live within a mythological landscape mm. as well as a sacred landscape. So I've never taken that for granted. So, so that will be nice. That will just be a nice respite because, you know, you can imagine knowing what I do for a living because I work for Her Majesty's Coroner. The last year has been somewhat traumatic. I bet, yeah. <laughs> you know, with yeah. the amount of of deaths that we've had here yeah um, it has been unprecedented you know I've never seen anything like it in my entire 30-year career never really? nothing and it's been uh, traumatic it's been distressing yeah it's been very difficult to digest so uh, luckily I have tools you know thankfully I have some tools at my disposal as a druid to help me digest that so it's been peculiar times but I think you've you've fared significantly better haven't you we've only we've had less than a thousand deaths so yeah um for the whole time so yeah it's pretty and And as for the whole of Australia and the whole yeah all of Australia 910 last time I checked I don't think there's been any more right so but we're yeah we've been you know we had lockdown and we we've taken lots of precautions and and Mm. yeah they're just managed to keep on top of it so yes yeah hundred six seven thousand i think here yeah it's just wild i can't imagine it's been quite crazy but wales we've we've fed fairly fairly better off in wales uh, Mm. because the welsh assembly government have been far stricter than the english government so uh, we've not done too badly our uh, first minister he's he's pretty good actually he's in a pretty mm. good job fair play he must be very difficult I wouldn't want their job would you oh, oh gosh yeah in the middle of all of this but yeah you know? it's like no matter like you want to do the right thing but gosh it's so it must be so just heart-wrenching and emotionally mm. difficult not to be able to see people especially when like for our practice like when getting together is such an important thing yes. um yeah I think we all went a bit crazy about the English ale it was all a bit overwhelming being able to I get back imagine. together and um yes. yeah and then we had a funeral the next day as well which was unrelated oh, to covid but yeah that was for wyvern yeah it's really oh, sad yes of course yes yes i did see some of yeah. the pictures that flashed up on on facebook but how lovely that you were all able I to know. actually gather and do something to honor a life that's quite amazing yeah so and those things are so important for us right and to not be able to do those yeah it's like how yes. have you guys been coping with that that's that's been that's been very difficult i've lost some some friends due to covid and mm. a dear friend died at the, at the height of the first wave she uh, was a welsh actress who i worked with professionally but she was also a dear friend and she died during the crisis and of course nobody could see her afterwards we weren't allowed to go to the funeral and and it it felt very jarring I was I was quite fortunate in that she came to my morgue so I was able to take all the precautions and I didn't want her to go and face eternity without her eyebrows being on point oh yes it's very important yeah she would have been devastated you know? yes so I made sure that she looked we all need best. you as our coroner cor- cor- <laughs> so and that and that was special just to share 
that moment with her physical yeah. remains. You know? But it has been difficult. And, and at the same time, it's been a bit of a learning curve. And also everything that surrounds my, my usual life as a Druid has been completely digital and virtual, mm. which is, and, I've, and I'm, I'm a reluctant tech user. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so hard, come. isn't it? When we're nature-based, a nature-based tradition, it just feels so against the, the I it don't know, does. the intuition of it all. Yeah. And yet it's been remarkable, the mm. sense of connection that we've had. We, we perform all of our open rituals. I mean, we only held two open rituals and a ticketed event for Karen Gayao for um, uh, Halloween. Mm. And um, But now we're hosting almost every single seasonal festival uh, remotely. And so whereas we might get 300 people attend the summer solstice ritual, mm. we're getting nearly 20,000 people. Wow it online and you you can glean a sense of a worldwide community in a way that wasn't really possible before even though we had the technology I don't think we we were ever in a position where we felt that we needed to use it but I don't think we can go back now mm. I think that when we do go back to bring Keshe for our seasonal celebrations I imagine we'll also simultaneously be live casting it mm. How wonderful. There seems to be an expectation, I think, now from people. And it's so inclusive, isn't it? People who have not been able to attend conferences because of disabilities, you know, yeah. physical or mental disabilities, or just location, or because of you know, financial issues. They, they felt so included during the pandemic of mm. being able to attend a myriad of classes that they've never been able to do before. And I find that quite, quite remarkable, that mm. something good can come out of something so challenging yeah absolutely and and this these rituals you're talking about that's with the druid the anglesey druid order of course yes 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 so for people who don't know about the order would you like to tell us a bit about it so so we we found the, the order was founded found founded found found my little welsh brain fails on the on the old english being oh, my just, second language well sometimes it's fun to explore the those little you know slips <laughs> like that it's like was it found how was it found yeah how was you it know. found i'll say established yeah okay <laughs> founded is right what i do yeah <laughs> we established it in 1999 and it got going a couple of years later, you know, we were floundering about in the dark for a while, trying to discover what the hell we were doing, you know. And um, so it's, it's around 20 years, give or take a year or so. And we felt that it was important that there was something here on the island of Anglesey to acknowledge the historical significance of Anglesey mm. in the last great age of the British and Northern European Druids. So Anglesey was an important place within the history of Druidism in its totality. And Anglesey was a particular threat to the might of Rome. So the Caesar who was in control at the time sent one of his chief commanders, Suetonius Paulinus, to Anglesey to sack, to destroy, to assimilate the Druidic stronghold of Anglesey. And that's a fair distance from where they were in you know, Londinium. And, um, and that would have been a dreadful journey to take 20,000 men at arms through a mountainous region 
and to get here to Anglesey on the very edge of Western Britain to destroy a group of people who seemingly were of such a threat to Rome. I find that remarkable in itself because yeah. nothing ever exciting happens on Anglesey, you know, <laughs> but in 62 AD, yeah, it was, it was a big deal. It was <laughs> yeah. really happening. <laughs> so Suetonius came, there was a huge battle that was recorded by some of the classical authors and also recorded in the vernacular traditions as well. And But he turned on his heels because Boudica or um, Bivik, as we would call her in Welsh, she kicked off down in the south. And there is some speculation that the reason that she was retaliating and summoning an army was because of the attack on the Holy of Holies on Anismorn. Mm what is now called Anglesey. Oh. So she also went and moved northwards to a place called God Manchester, where Suetonius Paulinus engaged Rebordica and she met her demise. So it was 18 years later by the time Agricola came here and settled in what is now modern day Carnarvon, a town that was called Segontium. And the I guess the Romanization of this corner of Northwest Wales was complete, but there was this peculiar 18 year gap and so what happened during those 18 years nobody really knows they certainly have found some bodies in Dublin Bay which have got jewelry and other accoutrements which have the mineralogical fingerprint of Paris Mountain which is here on the island of Anglesey so some people have speculated oh they were Anglesey druids who escaped to Ireland and I mean who knows I mean I find that quite a quite a lovely idea actually because yeah. they are our cousins you know and um so so who knows what happened during that period but we felt as if we needed to acknowledge something that either rekindled that seat of learning or or honored or simultaneously rekindled and honored the the spirit of the ancestors here on Anglesey so so that's why the order came into being so we're very Welsh um, centric, obviously, from, because of where we are and the primary language of the order is, is Welsh and our teachings are through the Welsh tradition. Mm. And, um, and also we just wanted, a, primarily I wanted a place where people could fall in love with the place on a spiritual level as well as on a physical level, because it's a beautiful place, but spiritually as well, this island has a particular essence a particular quiddity to her nature that is intriguing and enchanting and enspelling and I love during the residential courses because we have a physical school that people you know not only fall in love with a place but they fall in love with each other and, and I love that mm. I love that druidry connects people and it connects people to place mm. so you know, at the, at the very foundational level of my connection to the order, that's what sings to my spirit. It's that profound connection of people with place and place with people and all of the other inhabitants of kin that occupy this space, you know, seen and unseen. I love that. It just brings me so much joy. And then we do all the other stuff, you know, like rituals and teachings and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, so, the, it's fundamentally well, the love that I love. So, so you do um, retreats there and, and do, you, do you have a school or something there that people can go to as well? We uh, do. Usually, we... usually. Yes, usually, usually. Yeah. Obviously that didn't happen last year and it's debatable. I mean, today is Friday, the 4th of June. So the first minister of Wales is making an announcement later today, which will seal the fate of this year's residential course. I suspect yeah. it won't happen. 
And so we'll just have to, you know, up our gears a little and just mm. ensure that it is available online, which I was oh. always rather reluctant to do. I've always yeah. been somewhat reluctant, but I can now have a completely different appreciation for the beauty and validity of that particular approach because of the pandemic. So it will be available online as well. But, <laughs> but again, you know, nothing beats nothing beats that feeling of knowing that there are people who travel from literally all corners of the world and I get a sense of them all traveling to this particular place and we gather in our school we have a physical school which was an old girls school on the east coast of the island a Victorian school and to to be within within a bubble you know it creates this little bubble that is betwixt and between mm. and there's always a sense of pilgrimage and togetherness and community and sharing of the mysteries that the order teaches and the traditions that we teach and and just being in that place in that liminal space for mm. only three days each time that they come but there's a there's a there's a profound beauty to that and whilst, yes, we can share our, our teachings, we can certainly share that online and with videos, you can get a sense of an individual. Um, but we'll still simultaneously be running the residential course as well. Mm. So I'm, I've got so many questions that that brings up. Um, I've been working <laughs> a little bit lately with um, Aboriginal people um, and leaders in the community here and talking to them about song lines and how, like, their stories are related to specific places and how the story kind of comes up out of the earth for them mm. and they they and it's made me think about our um welsh and irish and other traditions and how they're really often located in very specific places and um yeah like like i suppose it's helping me see our traditions in different ways and hearing you talk about that is really fascinating do you do you feel like the stories kind of come up out of the land to us in in our tradition as well like yes very very much so and i had I had an amazing conversation with a with a lady when i was in south um, south australia mm. um, about the aboriginal song lines and that concept of this song and i found the entire in the entire conversation so remarkable in that it rang so many bells of the way that my ancestors here used language and song to connect to the terrain, but also mm. to the spirits that were within their, their own culture. And that's encapsulated in what we refer to as the Welsh Bardic tradition. And the Bardic tradition, whilst to a non-Welsh Ear, they're hearing poetry being recited but within the Welsh language the poetry is referred to as a khan which means a song but it's a song that you don't necessarily learn as such but more of a song that you discover that you find I mean I'm reluctant to use the word channel because it's a loaded word yeah but it's more of a, a song that you find within the landscape and within relationship and that the song somehow reflects not only the the conversation that you're having with the land but also how that conversation may inspire other people to connect to to their own landscape and there's so much of that in the Welsh Bardic tradition and so much about preserving things that were culturally significant by means of songs 
And, and whilst, yes, it's not a song in the traditional English-speaking sense of something that is you know, rhythmic and lyrical and has music, but the metering is so strict and so, so profoundly complicated that it does create an alliteration. It creates a melody um, by the sound of the voice. And, and what I love about the Welsh tradition is the belief within the Bardic tradition that every single word has an animistic principle mm. and that every time you speak, you speak with the voices of the dead, that those words have been used before, that they have a, a resonant and alliteration, a quality that connects you to everyone who's ever used that word. I love that. I love that language is animated, that language is a stream, this eternal river that carries all of these songs, and that we might sing different lyrics to those songs, but that the tune, the melody is always the same, and that you know we bring different lyrics. And then, of course, when our experience in this world ends, the lyrics stop and we just fall back into the song, into that original song, and then we become a part of that originality of that origin and I love that and when I was speaking to the lady down in South Australia the concept was so similar there that they return to this song yeah. to this great song they rise up from it and they return to it and we have the same principle here yeah and you think it's why how is that it? possible <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean obviously so there's there's huge differences as well and and mm. um you know, cultural differences and all kinds of things. But, yeah, that sort of sense of, of the land holding that inspiration and getting it, yeah, it's, it's fascinating here you're talking about it. And, um, and also the language element of it's really fascinating too. How is um, being a native speaker of Welsh important to what you do? Um, that's a really peculiar and difficult question to answer <laughs> because it almost, I mean, I get asked that question a lot and it always feels like it's um, it's a juxtaposition or an oxymoron almost you know it's like because I don't have any other point of reference yeah yeah <laughs> I can I can only really see mm. the world through through the eyes of of a, of a native Welsh Celtic well, person, you know? perhaps um what what do you see uh non-native Welsh speakers get wrong <laughs> perhaps um it's not necessarily that people get get something wrong. I think it's I think it's more a matter of immersion. Mm. So I didn't I, I I didn't have to learn by rote. Or I didn't have to I didn't have to actively go out and find the the elements that are so important to my druidry today because they were just always there. Mm. We were always being told the stories of and Rhiannon in the four branches of the Mabinogi, you know, or how mm. Kiluch won Olwen, or we were always being told about the epic journeys of Taliesin and Arthur. They were just always there. They were always a part of the landscape and a part of the language. Mm. So I never really had to go and look for them. They were always the company of ancestors has always just been here as a part of the landscape. So when I have conversations with other native uh, Welsh people, they have the same experience. And, and while some of us have a deeper, more profound connection to those idiosyncrasies and those thematics within our culture, um, you know, not everybody has this deep, profound spiritual connection to, to this stuff, but some mm. of us really do, but it has always been there. It's just always been a part of it. So even when I 
first tentatively went to explore paganism, you come across, you know, the usual suspects. You come across Wicca, um, you come across derivations of Wicca, and I, I, I didn't even know that Druidry in the English-speaking world was even a thing until I was 21 or something, you know? I didn't realise that there were people out there who were connecting to stuff that was so inherently a part of my culture. And that, you know, of my siblings in Cornwall and Brittany and my cousins in Ireland and Scotland and the Isle of Man, it was just always there. It was just always a part of it. So when I did stumble into exploring things like Wicca, um, it didn't fit within my cultural worldview. It didn't, it didn't quite fit because I thought, oh, gosh, this, there was a lot there that was missing for me. So I just, I guess, started to develop my own sense of what a Welsh Celtic pagan would be. And then mm. suddenly I discovered that there were Druids in the world. And I thought, mm -hmm. really? <laughs> I thought they only existed, you know, here and in Ireland and in the God said of Bards of the National Eisteddfod. It didn't, I had no concept that people connected to it as a spiritual way of life. And that was such an eye opener. And, um, and well, you know, lo and behold, 30 years later, you know, That's <laughs> I'm, great. A, I, I'm a part of that worldwide community and that worldwide community honours so much that is culturally specific to my culture. You know, well, not just my culture, but also to Ireland and, you know, to my cousins and to, to my siblings. And that feels really beautiful. And we, we have a Druid who's coming up to stay with us. Um, she'll be arriving later on today. And she lives down in Kent and she is first language English, but she's now completely fluent in Welsh because of her love of the, the spirit of this place, you know, and the spirit of her druidry, that she's moved to being completely fluent in what she calls the language of the gods, mm. you know, and she feels somehow that she is, she has another level of connection to the gods or to the ancestors you know not that she didn't have a connection before she just feels that it's gone up a gear <laughs> you know, it's stepped up because she can speak with the voices mm. of the dead yes that's no, beautiful keep going. <laughs> you and know? do you do you feel like the the land sort of speaks in welsh in wales um or in, in kimraig we should say and kimraig yeah i i find um the analogy that I use for that is, so, so my husband is English, so he comes from the city of Liverpool, and, you know, we've been together for 30, nearly 30 years, 29 years, I think, and um, so when, when my parents, or my mum, when she comes here, we obviously speak English because Ian doesn't speak Welsh, and I find it really weird. I really really find it peculiar speaking Welsh to my mother because yeah. that's just not we, what we speak so it always feels a little oh, do bit do you mean false. speaking English to your mother yeah speaking yeah. English I to think you said Welsh weird. I don't know oh sorry sorry yeah so when I speak English to my mum it just doesn't it's yeah. just not right it's <laughs> yeah. just weird and, and it's the same with some of my work colleagues one of my work colleagues, Martin, he comes just from down the road from where I live and whenever we have to speak English together we kind of end up giggling because it just feels so peculiar. <laughs> and I have that exact same relationship with the land because, yeah, right. you know, as a little boy, I spoke to the trees, you know, and I made games in the woods with all of these characters and imaginary friends that I had. But they were, of course, they were all Welsh and all the trees were Welsh. And 
so so whenever I'm in, in in public ritual, I tend to do all the Welsh bits, and somebody else will do the English bits, because yeah. I have that strange relationship with language. <laughs> I just think, oh god, and, and I can almost sense in my head that the spirits of Bryn Cellier go, why is he talking to us in English? Yeah. Oh, I don't think you're alone in that intuition. I think that's really common. Like language is sacred, you know. It is, yes, very yeah. much so. And 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 there's a because of course it comes from somewhere so so profoundly deep in our origin of you know just being human, you know, and 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 of course any any culture is primarily defined by its use of language. So it's just it's so ingrained into my spirituality as well as my physicality that I find I, I can't find it impossible to to remove one from the other, and um, so yes, it feels really peculiar to to speak English with these you know whenever I offer my prayers or incantations or um, suinion as we would say in Welsh, they they're rather not jarring but they just feel as if I'm I'm being I don't know being not myself when I don't do it in my own language. And, um, but, you know, I get over it, you know, because if I go to a massive big Obod public ritual or something, then obviously it's, it's done in English yeah. and it's fine. It's absolutely fine. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, but personally I speak to, yeah. I commute with the land in Welsh. I find it such a beautiful thing when we come across the words and we get, especially when I've, I've been to your classes or workshops that you've done with us, and um, or reading your books as well, and you you talk about um specific words that come up in the tradition or in the stories, and and go into the depths of of what those mean, in a way that you know English speakers are never going to understand the same way that you do. And I'm I'm always so grateful for that. Um, I've been trying to learn some. Um, I don't want to say Welsh sometimes. Do you do you feel funny about calling it Welsh with the like? Do you prefer to call it Kimrick? No. I mean, I mean it, it's it's fine. We, we've become accustomed. I just to, it means slave, though, doesn't it? Isn't that like it that, means, that kind of hurts me saying that? <laughs> you know, um, isn't that it means, where the word comes it means from? foreigner. Oh, is it most foreigner? Yeah, it comes from the Anglo-Saxon valesh, right. which means kind of foreign other. Yeah. Whereas Cymru and Cymraeg means comrade or comradeship. Yeah, right. And, um, but you still and just say Welsh anyway. I think it's just, you know, it's just become a norm, I guess. Yeah. I guess you could say that we've reclaimed the word as our own, maybe yeah, to describe right. who we are as a people by through mm. the medium of English. Because if, if we can all we we always try and educate people as to the right terminology and the right phrases. And but as ways of introduction, it's always easier to say Wales, easier to say Welsh. But then when you progress with those conversations, it's nice to drop in. Well, actually, it's called Cymru and mm. the language is called Cymraeg and the Welsh are the Cymru, er Cymru. So the, right. the word ends with a with a with a Y or a U, depending if it's referring to the land or the people. Right. And, um, so. I guess it's just a matter of educating people as to, to you know what the right terminology is mm. for us from a from a cultural sort of indigenous level, mm. and um, and it's but yeah but no we're kind of cool with just the word Welsh because you, know? you know that's like you know really important to so many people that we're sensitive to indigenous cultures and Welsh is an indigenous culture right and um 
And I suppose if we're if we're learning about Welsh traditions, do you think it's important that we like learn things like that, but also take it, make an effort to learn the Welsh language? Is it going to give us more of an in-depth understanding of of things to be able to engage with Welsh or Kimreg? <laughs> yes, yes. I think in a nutshell, I think I think yes, be, because of the power of language. I think it's always like so. So when people come and and join the Anglesey Druid Order, they come and do some of our immersive training programs. It's not a requirement that they become fluent in Welsh, but it is a requirement that they at least try and engage their their mouths and their spirits with the particular phrases that we use so that they, they can get a sense of the language. And usually that just kind of leads them organically to wanting to learn the language. Mm. And some do it to a, you know, on a, on a rather superficial level where they, where they just do what they need to do and others fall totally head over heels in love with the language and become fluent, just like our friend Sam, who's going to be with us today. Mm. And, um, and of course, there's, there's always questions of appropriation of what is culturally appropriate to, to appropriate from another culture. Mm. But I think there's also so many ways in which people can develop non-appropriative practices. And that generally comes from honouring the, the foundation of the, the language and also the people who brought that language into being and also its progressive evolution through time. You know, so, so when, I, you know, when I wrote my, my latest book, Keridwen, it's very much about that. It encapsulates so much about the, the Welsh Bardic tradition, which, you know, it's because of the Welsh Bardic tradition that we had Yolo Morganog. And it's because of Yolo Morganog we have modern day druidry in the guise that it exists. You know, that's just a part of the, the progression of that particular spiritual expression in the P Celtic cultures. So, I think understanding and having an understanding of that is important, but also the, um, understanding as well that Wales has always been a victim of um, colonialization. Mm. You know, we've also suffered the same kind of indignities as as other nations have under the you know the imperialistic. Um, colonialization that happened through the British Empire and of course so much of that now is being addressed you know and publicly acknowledged as as, as being inherently wrong and mm. you know so much is being attempted to to reconcile some of the damages that the empire did throughout the world and of course I think sometimes people also forget that some of that empirical or empirical damage happened right here in the British Isles. You know, the, the Welsh was beaten out of the child. There were times where you were forbidden to speak Welsh. The, the, the conspiracy, as they call them, of the blue books in the mid 1800s eliminated so much of our cultural references that were so inherently Welsh Celtic. And it was done with an ulterior motive and an agenda. You know, there's the, the the dilemmas of the Welsh knot that, you know, if you were caught speaking Welsh in school, you had to wear this huge big wooden plaque around your neck that with, with a W and an, and an N carved into it. So not a knot as in a K-N-O-T, but Welsh N-O-T, you will not. Oh. So we, yeah. we were, we faced this, those indignities of becoming second class citizens within a land that was originally, you know, predominantly Celtic throughout. 
So, so all of those things have, they've left a bad taste in so many cultures throughout the world that were the victims of that kind of suppression that happened, not just from the British Empire, but from other you know, forces as well. And um, so we still have elements of that that are ingrained into our society and sometimes there's a knee-jerk reaction to the, the echo of colonialization. And, um, and that's inherent in, in not just in our culture, but also in our spiritual legacy as well. And I think when people move into an, an appreciation that that has happened to us, um, that, that paves the way, I think, for building a relationship with the theme, for the thematics and the, the, the nuts and bolts of the inspiration of Welsh spirituality into modern paganism. Mm. And I think it's important that people have an understanding of what happened. And that just helps to develop non-appropriative practices, I think, you know? Yeah. It's, um, a, it's a complicated history. Yeah, in Australia, we call it truth-telling. I don't know if that's something that everybody says everywhere, but yeah, like, you know, getting <clears> to <throat> the the hard truth of it and, not, you know, owning up to what really happened. Um, <clears throat> yes, yes. In, we, we have the same saying here in Welsh, which is a gwir an erbyn a beard, the truth against the world. Mm. You know, um, can you and will you bring peace? And, um, and, and even, you know, the God Said Prayer, which is a song, uh, also kind of encapsulates that spirit, you know, of, mm. of, of truthfulness and, yeah, and of righteousness, you know. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really complicated history. And I think sometimes people might be frightened off by those things. But ultimately, I think it's just our language is so sacred to, to not just our secular culture, but our spiritual culture. And I think if people realize that and they kind of go, well, do you know what, I'm going to have a go. <laughs> I'm going to have a go at saying some of these things or mm. using the language as part of you know, uh, my druidry kind of thing. Um, I think they would find only enlightenment and illumination. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, yeah, it's a respectful thing to do as well, I think. Um, if uh, if people are wanting to engage with Welsh stories and, and culture and traditions and language and they live in Australia or in anywhere other than Wales, is how do we like think about that in in terms of doing it ethically? Do you know, I think there's so much within mythology that shares a common international motif. And, and I think so often global mythologies are very much reflective of a not only an external mythological landscape, but also an internal mythological landscape. And I think that's why so many mythologies from around the world share so, so many similarities mm -hmm. and have so much in common because they seem to be reflecting something that is indicative of the human experience and the human condition in relation to, to, its, to its land, to its sense of place, which is why, you know, I'm always astounded when I've, I've spoken to so many First Nation Indigenous people in the United States, and that some of their stories are, are the same as ours, and really? it's the same in Europe, it's the same in some Africa, ironically, it was, you know, and, and surprisingly, it was similar in Australia and Oshana. So there's, there's all these similarities. And, and of course, there are so many huge differences as well. But fundamentally, there's these similarities. And I think when the people who move into the spirit of Druidry, they tend to, to reach back through, through their genetics, through their ancestry. And of course, they, they find the people who are 
Canada or Australia and New Zealand and the United States, so many of those people have ancestry that come from these lands. So I think some part of their genetic makeup remembers the, the validity and the value held within those tales because they're speaking of their ancestry somehow. Mm. And when you look very closely at Welsh myth, all of the names within Welsh mythology, they're, they're all verbs or they're all adjectives. They're not just personal nouns. They're all, they're all telling us something about the nature of self. And, and I think people can, can use that, whether they're using it as a Celtic um, framework or a, or, a, or a clothes horse upon which to add other accoutrements from the lands upon which they're currently living. I think ultimately when they connect to the to the meanings and the, the messages within the myths, that they're applicable wherever they are in the world. And by moving into relationship with the people who brought those stories into life, then they're doing it in a non-appropriative manner by honoring and acknowledging where they come from. Mm. And um, But I think the, the truths that are hid within the stories are applicable wherever you are because they're speaking of the the human condition, but and I think it's a big but. The stories should never be static, and I think the the biggest downfall to modern day neo pagan spirituality is that there's there's a tendency to believe that these stories are static, that they've mm. been captured in a moment in time and that they're immovable. And, and, and even within the Welsh tradition, that's certainly not the case. These stories continuously evolved, they developed, they, they responded to the needs of the people. Yeah. And I genuinely don't see why there can't be a version of the Bladeyev, Bladeyev mythology in America or New Zealand or Fiji mm. or Hawaii, you I, know, that's, yeah, that's I, applicable, you know? Yeah, I, <laughs> I wrote a version and I, and I kind of, it sits sort of uncomfortably with me. Um, <clears throat> I wrote a version of the Taliesin story um, as though it was going through the Australian landscape with a, right. with a, a dingo chasing a wallaby and a, um, what did I have? an eel chasing a, a brim and a, a fairy wren being chased by a kookaburra. And then oh, wow. it was a, a lyrebird eating a waddle seed because the lyrebird like repeats the songs of lots of other birds. And so it was sort of singing the songs. But um, anyway, I, I, <laughs> I sometimes wonder whether that was an okay thing to do or whether it was inappropriate. And yeah, I don't know. What do you think? No, no, I, I love that. That's, that's <laughs> a huge, I mean, especially because I know what a fairy wren is and I've seen one and I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and so Nick said, it was a fairy wren. Like, I've never seen anything so beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, it was just amazing. I thought it was a fairy. <laughs> <laughs> They're very but, cute. Um, but I love that because it's taking, it's taking the ancestral seed and it's planting it in a new story land in a new place that it might never have encountered before mm. and I think you know because there's always an issue isn't there of you know when when people move to another country or to another land there's always the issue of okay so you know should we really be playing with what the people who were originally here mm. did and all that appropriation stuff but I think when people take the seeds of their own ancestry 
and they develop that into something which is applicable to their location, to their wheel of the year, which is so different wherever you go anyway. You know, mm. there's, there's so much that's problematic with the current neo-pagan wheel of the year as soon as you leave the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, gosh, what on earth is happening here? <laughs> um, and But I love that. I love that somebody took the Taliesin story and made it appropriate to the land upon which which you're living on because mm. you know you live down there in Australia you know and I and I it's an assumption but I assume that some of your ancestors bones are now in that ground no I'm first generation so I was I was born in England but yeah oh well yeah yeah but that, you know but I, I imagine so many people yeah. over there do have ancestors absolutely in the ground, yeah you know, and they've been there for let's see, 200 years yeah 230 yeah not really a very long time on the scheme of things but yeah yeah yeah. but still you know but there are ancestors in the ground yeah and some of those ancestors and like yourself you've come from here you know that there's so much within you that's from here and from your parents grandparents and I think when we take the seeds of myth and we plant them because ultimately the function of mythology and the function of bardism here in Wales is to seed the future with wisdom. Mm. Now that sounds quite simple, but that's a hell of a challenge and, and a hell of a task because we do so much out of folly. We do so much out of not being wise, you know, <laughs> unsagaciously. Yeah. And I think there's a huge message in that simple phrase, you know, that that their their purpose, their function is to seed the future with wisdom, mm. to to use those elements to inspire a future generation. So ultimately, all of our myths and the the bardic material of the Welsh tradition. They're essentially spells, and those spells are to ensure that wisdom is given and planted so that it grows into a tree that will bear fruit, but that those fruits will be very different from the seeds that those ancestors planted. And I think if we if we always assume that the tale of Taliesin and Keridwen is, I mean, you know, you know, it's good to explore them. I mean, I just have, you know, plug, plug with my new book. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> but they still evolve and we are, we are continuously injecting them with evolution and progression so that they become appropriate for the 21st century. And um, so when people, Druids in Australia, look at these mythologies, they can glean wisdom from them because that was the point of that story. The, mm. the point of that story was to seed the future with wisdom. So if current day users look at it and go, what wisdom, what sagacity can I glean from this? And how can I express that as a fundamental component of my spirituality? Then I think the myth has served its function and purpose. It's mm. done what it was seeded to do, what its, what its function was originally. And um, so I think it's all about perspective and how we perceive the validity of these things. And, and, the reason, and, and the fact that they're still here, you know, we're still telling these tales and we have theatre groups and pagan groups and all sorts throughout Wales who continuously work on these mythologies and present them in very different and very new ways. Mm. But they retain the fundamental principle of, of the tale itself. You know? mm. So they, they retain that and then from it grow beautiful flowers, you know? Mm. It's, yeah, it's sort of like... I'm 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 seeing like the the balance there between what we were talking about at the beginning about it being very much located in that very specific place 
and you know being held by the land there but also it's sort of universal nature that it can be understood in so many different places and times yes, um, yes exactly yeah yeah so so you know in a, in a sense i i perceive my job as a my job as a druid is to preserve the elements of my culture which bring to me the, the utmost joy and spiritual fulfillment and illumination so that my job as a druid is to preserve that and to share it with the world as, as awen as inspiration and um so yes so, so, so the tale of keridwen has a physical location you know the mm. tale of the birth of taliesin is there and and we guard and help maintain that that spirit if you like within this location but also understand that as that tail rises from Kiridwen's cauldron into steam that steam has the freedom to go wherever it so wishes mm. but it comes from that cauldron the cauldron's location has never moved it's the steam that's taking it to other places and that steam is coming from the heat of passion and love and commitment and devotion that was given to that cauldron and the fact that you know wherever i go in the world that steam is there in every gathering in every druid's life that i encounter and in their expression i can smell the steam from keridwen's cauldron and because it's landed on their skin and into their lungs it sounds slightly different it might express itself slightly different but it's come from the same cauldron mm, you know, it's, and, it's, <laughs> and it's exactly i suppose you know, if, you, if you take that that uh, our particle physicists and astronomers and astrophysicists are correct in that we all came from this single explosion that you could fit on the end of a pin it's the same analogy you know that that pin that that big bang is the real cauldron is the single mm. the original cauldron and everything else is is the power that came from it and and i think it's exactly the same principle with myth the cauldron never changes shape form it's just there so and i think that's what we feel when we go to bala and we stand there within that caldera almost, within that cauldron of the landscape, the mountains that holds the lake and the cliff edges within that lake that hold the water in place. And, and yet she, she moves with us. We take her from that place as steam of Awen, you know, as the breath of Awen and, um, and share it with the world. But we keep coming back to that one same, same place as if we need an injection from the source of that particular tale which is about Awen mm. and um, so yeah so I just wherever I go in the world I, I'm just encountering the different expressions of the cauldron steam. Mm, I love that. Um, do, you, do you find many people come to Bala as like a pilgrimage like in normal days when it's not COVID? Um, yes when it's not COVID. Well, I feel like it's always have to put that in there. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so now we, we're, we're able to, to to travel we've been able to travel through oh, us good. for I think about a month or so now and um so that's been that's been rather refreshing just to be able to go and visit these places mm. but yes yeah, so many people pilgrimage there there's there's a goddess temple in Bala now mm. called um Temel Keridwen Bala or the temple of Keridwen in Bala and, uh, and that's lovely that it's that it's there. It's on the high street and it's been well received, which says an awful lot about how opinions are changing as well within what was essentially a very Presbyterian landscape. Mm. Um, we also facilitate every year. Well, you know, except for COVID, 
but we have planned this this September to return for the Anglesey Druid Order's annual pilgrimage to Bala, where we spend, um, I think it's three or four days, three days, three days, mm. there on the shores of her lake and engaged in ritual and, you know, classes and presentations. And, um, and people come from all over the world to attend our organized pilgrimage, but people are constantly there. And, and the thing that's beautiful is the way that the, the, the lake was formed glacially. So it basically has these huge cliffs that form a chasm that are hundreds of feet sheer. And um, so the, the lake itself is very, very shallow for about 20 yards, it's really shallow. And then suddenly <laughs> it's hundreds of feet with no warning, you know, it's just a sheer cliff face. But the, the rock fractures and sends up these shards uh, just through the current of the lake itself. And they wash up on the shore in their millions. And they all look like fingers. They're all exactly finger length. They're all about the same length and the same width, you know, with some variation. And they're called locally Keridwen's fingers, Basev Keridwen. And you will find wherever you walk in Bala, you'll find three rays formed by these fingers that people have purposefully placed on Aww. tree root, rock and bank, you know, and, and I love it. And everybody goes, so oh, there's one there, <laughs> but there's another one. And, and you think that's such a delight as well, because when they're never that far from the water's edge and you know, and eventually through storm surge or tempest, they return to the water, you know, by hook or by crook, but nobody's leaving anything else. They're just leaving these tiny little acknowledgements of the power of inspiration. Beautiful. Through Aseth Keridwen. And, um, and it's, I think it's just start, and I think people do it even when they don't know what it means. People see <laughs> them, ordinary secular folk go, oh, so obviously what you do here, let's lay these out <laughs> in this particular pattern, you know? And, uh, and, I, and I remember coming across some dog walkers once and I saw them actively doing it. And, and I asked them, and they didn't know what it meant. They just said, oh, well, it seems <laughs> as if that's what people do. <laughs> so I told them, and they were like, so oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. What did they think of it? They, they were absolutely blown away. I think I might have sold a couple of books as well from that. <laughs> they were absolutely fascinated, but they had no idea that... That was a thing, you know, that there was this mm. entire mythology yeah. associated with this place. Well, it just enlivens the place, doesn't it? Knowing the story of it and knowing, you know, how it relates to our lives. And it just, it makes landscape come alive, doesn't it, story? Yes, yes, very much mm. so. And I, and, I, and I love, I love the fact that this entire animistic principle that is held within my druidry is so related to the living principle of the land itself. And, and what I, what I also love is, is that when, when I come to the, to the end of my life, you know, we're so, you know, anything in the Western world, we're so individualized. It's all about the individual and everything that you can do and achieve and get that car and get that job and get that house and, you know, work for your retirement and then you die. And yet, mm the song of the land is so communal so that when I die, I just become a part of that music again. Mm. You know, the lyrics of my life come to an end and, they, and, they, and it just, just, just ends. But I go back to that song. I go back to that memory of place. So when we go to Brinkeshi, she stood there for 5,000 years, this beautiful monument. 
absolutely beautiful monument that our ancestors built to line up with the summer solstice sunrise. And that's where we have our open rituals. And when I go there, I have a sense that we are in community with her. It is community. And we're not focusing and pinpointing our direction or, or attention to a single ancestor, but rather to a stream of ancestors mm. that are held within that place. And one day I'll be a part of that song you know, I'll be in that stream, in that current. And I love that. That brings me so much comfort and joy and sense of permanence here as, as an ancestor. You know, I'm not so concerned about what happens to my spirit. I just, you know, we just carry on like back mm. to factory settings, whatever that was, you know, but that I'll still be here, but I'll, I'll be here as, as the song. And yeah. I just love that living principle with held within the land itself. That brings me a lot of joy and comfort. Um, mm. Is there a word for the song? I know in Irish they call the Oran Moor, but the the great song. But uh, is there a word for that in in Welsh? Um, so we have we have several terms that refer to that, and one of them is held in the Book of Taliesin when Taliesin sings a song and it's called Cania Beard Maur or the song of the great world oh, but throughout all of the descriptions of these songs essentially it's just one word which is Khan you know and that the, the song itself is 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 that factory setting it, it's it's this it's the thing that is always permanent that is always mm. continuously existing and that we pick at it and we pull strands of that song. And as we pull the strands, we write lyrics to them that are indicative of what we're hearing and what we're feeling. So that every bard almost had a different phrase or a different term to refer to his or her connection to the song. And mm. so, so, yeah, essentially it's just Khan. It's just song. Oh. And then people would write poems that would break that down. So I guess we could maybe move into a deeper relationship with it by placing it into a smaller box that we could understand it a little bit better or connect to it with ease. So um, it's, and it's beautiful. I just, I, I love, I love that, you know, and the fact that Awen is imbibed in that and Awen just means blessed, holy breath in the Welsh language. So it's something that is blowing through you but it's constantly blowing and it's whether you choose to inhale it and then exhale an aspect of that as an expression of your living and how we do that and how we inspire mm. by standing in its current and in, in the flow of its breath you know and that's all held in this concept of song and I love it yeah. love it <laughs> it always makes me think of like there's an orchestra playing and you're just playing sort of one instrument is your life and you know you're just adding to the you know, yeah every, everything yeah, playing nice. together yeah yeah so, I like that mm. yeah, yeah very much so Being part <laughs> of an orchestra mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm. so beautiful so um do you talk about these things in your new book what what's what's actually i've got your cauldron born book which in which you talk about the story of taliesin mm. and caradwen but your new book is just about caradwen specifically what what's the difference between the two so so the first one was an exploration of the tale so mm -hmm. it starts with the tale and it kind of ends with the tale and it's all of the components within the tale but 
I was always aware that, I think I wanted to write, I wrote that book first because it was in response to the pagan community mm. and that so many people were familiar with that particular tale, but not everybody kind of knew where it came from or what all of the concepts within it actually meant within a Welsh context. So I wanted to address some of that, but I wanted to address it in a way that was very simple and that people could have you know some education as to where it came from without going into huge depths of profundity. But I knew that out of that, another book would come that would address the origin of that tale. Mm. So that tale in in a Celtic sense is fairly fairly new. It was mm. it only came into its literal form around between the right 1480 to 1550-ish, you know, give mm. or take a decade or three. And it was only within that vague hundred year period that the tale found its its form. And I always wondered, well, what was there before that? What was there before this tale came to being written on parchment? So I went looking and, and of course, what I found was that throughout the entire literal history of the Welsh Badic tradition, and I was limited to explore only the literal tradition, because mm. that's all we've got a record yeah. of. We don't know what they did in the vernacular and the oral tradition prior to it being written. So I could only go back as far as the seventh century with the beginning of the literal Welsh Badic tradition. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that throughout that entire period of time, Ceridwen was always present, oh, wow. constantly, constantly present. And, and it was a fairly patriarchal society where, you know, that women were not really mentioned. There was nothing much spoken or written about women, but there was one that stood out like a sore thumb. These people, my ancestors adored, they adored Keridwen and mm. they were constantly referring to her as the font of their Awen, the very source of their Bardic inspiration, such profound admiration and love and honour and respect for for this for this woman um, who has always been there and you can see then within the Bardic material some of the, the strands that became the bubbles that distilled into the tale you can you can see how all of the the threads of Keridwen came together over centuries and centuries of time and and she's still here She's still so much a part, such a vivid part of this landscape, but also now people know of her all over the world, you know, and a hundred years ago, that would not have been the case at all. She would have only have been an element of the Welsh landscape, but, mm. and that brings me so much joy because all of those people who know her story, who tell her story, who find meaning in her story, are literal heroes of my culture because they help to preserve those elements of, of culture. And mm. that's, that's really important. And all those people who move into learning Welsh, they really are heroes because they are helping the language to survive and to thrive. So it's, um, 
I went off on a thread there, didn't I, on a tangent. I tend Keep to going. do that. It's fine. I'm not Let's entirely sure what the original question was. <laughs> I was asking what your book was about. It's all right. Oh, yes, yes, that was it. <laughs> so, so, it all, so it all came from that. So I, I wanted to, I wanted people to, to have an understanding of the Welsh bardic tradition. Yeah. You know, so when people have gone looking for a goddess, they've not found a goddess because there never was one. Mm. And because, not because that, wasn't a valid thing but it's because they they had no concept of what a goddess was and mm. people can't conceptualize that which they have no concept of so people but, go back and go oh there's no goddess so they can't have been one but she wasn't a goddess she was something else mm. so people were looking in all of the wrong places for who she was so then when you find who she is she's just profoundly magical mm and enduring you know and mm. that's that, I think that's what enduring she's endured and now she has become a goddess mm. and um and you know I've got her over there on my altar you're quite <laughs> happy about that aren't you Kira Dredd? yes she's quite happy about that <laughs> she likes so, um, being a goddess yeah I mean I I mean I know so many of us experience her as a goddess um but in the stories how would you describe her in those is she uh I sometimes think of um, like Superman and and Spider-Man and these kind of, you know, um, superheroes that we have and think, oh, well, they were kind of like that. They were larger than life characters, but they weren't necessarily deified. Is it something like like that, do you think? Or how would you describe it? I I guess the, the way that I would describe um, Keridwen in particular, if I just focus on her, she was certainly not perceived as a human being. She was right. certainly perceived as a spiritual principle mm. or, or as a spirit, you know, as an entity that was other. So she was certainly not connected to as an actual human individual. So she had this quality of otherness, even mm. all the way back in the early literal beginnings of the Welsh Bardic tradition. But I think the closest word in the English language that I could equate to her from the minds or the mouths of the bards would be muse. Mm. So, so a force or a power that inspired other people. And, and I think the closest word in English to that would be a muse. And mm. but that that again was problematic because the, the Welsh body tradition went through four eras. We're currently living in the fourth era. And the third, the, the, the previous one to us, was the um, Bards of the Nobility, the, the Bay of the Richelwyr. They did not like Ceridwen at all. By that point, they'd become very elite. They were the learned. They were essentially snobs within, within our culture and community they were very defensive and protective of the bardic tradition in a way that excluded people but they were being heavily influenced by the the elite and the learned of England so they were they were moving more into relationship with you know profound knowledge and academia and scholarship mm. and and things that were just never present prior to to Bayer Bards of the Nobility so they had a problem with Ceridwen and they tried to eliminate her. Mm. But unfortunately for them, they went out of their way to demonize her. That's not the way to do it. If you want something to disappear, don't, don't give it any credence, pay it no heed and it mm. will vanish of its own <laughs> volition. But they didn't. They went out of their way to demonize her and turn her into 
uh, a grach, which is now equatable with a witch. Mm-hmm. And um, But why do that? Why go out of your way to demonize somebody if it had no power? You know, yeah. if it was inconsequential, just let it annihilate itself. But of course, they didn't. They gave her, in a way, more endurance and more tenacity to survive and she survived Mm. it's quite amazing that that some of the stories did when you consider how harsh the you know social environment was in the history yeah yes i mean there's there's been a lot of of problems with the way that we have been educated as to the 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 historical um, truths of our own culture so throughout the Welsh Badic tradition, it's always been assumed that there were never women. There were never women bards. There were no female bards. They didn't write poetry about women. Mm. And that information is wholly inaccurate. We did have female bards. It's Mm. just their voices were suppressed by the last incarnation of the by, by, by the bards of the nobility and and also the things that were happening in society like the the blue books that were essentially the um the standard authority on education in wales and they kind of removed so much out of our culture and one of that was the voices of our women so thankfully they still didn't manage to destroy all the manuscripts so some of the manuscripts have been found and only literally only in the last 20 years have the voices of our female bards come into being and one of them is called Gwerville Mechain so she's the one who's been explored the most extensively and and she has just blown away every single view that we had of women in Wales and also female bards. She was immensely, powerfully sexually independent and sexually expressive. We were always told that Welsh women were stoic, they were prudish, they were very God-fearing and decent. And it turns out they weren't. Our women <laughs> Our women knew how to have a good time and they wrote (laughs) about it. They wrote extensively about it, but we were told that they didn't exist and they did exist. And some of the profundity within, I'm I'm a huge fan of Gwerville Mechain, the profundity and the depth of emotion in her bardic works is phenomenal. And and I'm glad I did a, a presentation on Keridwen for the Sisterhood of Avalon in the United States a couple of weeks ago mm. and I wanted Gwerville Mechain to have a voice and, um, and every single platform worldwide sold out of that book within 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so every, every person who attended that presentation, which was over 100, they all bought this book there and then. The publisher must have thought, what the hell happened on that Sunday night? <laughs> Good work. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So, so you talk about that poet in the new book? So, so no, I, I don't. Um, um, that that would be a completely different because I, I I couldn't even pay her justice by. Mm. So, so no, I've kept her because she didn't she didn't particularly write about profound spiritual stuff. Um, she did do a little bit, but her hers were quite a different category of poetry. So, I've kept my Keridwen book to the Keridwen and the Talisianic material. So mm. all to do with, you know, the, the, I guess what is appropriate for modern pagans to, or what I think that they should know about the culture that gave birth mm. to 
Ceridwen. But of course, somebody like Gwerdeville Mechain is still a child of Ceridwen because she was a bard. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, so I think, and he seems like when you finish one book, you think, oh God, there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll have to write about that now. <laughs> there's like always something else. There's always a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, I can't wait to read it. When does it come out? Is it out already? Um, it's out already. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not because I think there's always a delay in it reaching Europe. So it came out in America at the beginning of April. It's only just come out in the, in Britain about three weeks ago. Okay. And okay. it should be out imminently in Oceana, I think. Should. Um, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I'm. Yeah. Sure. Have I, a look. That's yeah, what it looks like. By the by the time I don't know if I'll share a video of this, but it'll be a podcast. Oh but right, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, um, if you if you have uh, psychic skills, you just saw it. But uh, <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I think it should be imminently available yeah. in in Australia and New Zealand. Great. So yeah, awesome. Yeah, well, I can't journey. wait to read it. Um, thanks so much for coming to talk to me. I, I, uh, that's about an hour. So is that is that okay with you? Gosh, is it already? Yeah, unless you want to talk some more. I'm totally oh happy God, to keep going. Thing. I just keep going, don't I? <laughs> I just don't stop. <laughs> you can keep going if you want to. I've got loads of questions I could ask you, but I just... You oh, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on then, ask me a question. Okay. Um, tell me about... So... Um, yeah, tell me about Mag- Maggie Noggy. <laughs> so, so I've always been an actor on Welsh television. So I started acting on Welsh television in, oh gosh, when was it? Oh, like the early 90s, something like that. And at the same time, I was uh, a drag queen in my other life, you know, in, in my life as a, as, a, as a gay person. And... Um, And that in itself was a response. It was a response to the fact that I never really felt a part of the gay community at all. It was just something that I never felt that I fitted in. I was never good looking enough. I didn't have the body and the six pack, you know, and because there's so, that's what I saw within the community was so much of this body beautiful. And I never really felt as if I fitted into that particular niche. But then I discovered drag, you know, which allowed me to be beautiful and also to express a beauty that was that was other, that was different. And I've always considered it to be an act of magic, you know, an act of glamoury, of pure, true glamoury. And um, and when I compare my druidry to to my drag, you know, one of the three Ds of my life, death, drag, and druidry, you know, talk about <laughs> a quandary. <laughs> and, and actually... They, they have a functionality which shares a profound similarity. So my druidry helps myself to transform my anxieties into joy, which is you know, also a fundamental teaching within the first branch of the Mabinogi with Praderi, the child of Puitlan Rhiannon, meaning his name means anxiety or separation mm-hmm. anxiety. So I find that in my druidry, it helps me assimilate the anxieties in my life into joy. Mm-hmm. And when I work as a drag artist, um, my drag is also about the transformation of anxiety into joy. So they share the same function, the same purpose in my life. And if people come to a Maggie show, then for one hour, they can completely forget anything that's going on in their lives, you know, because they're, they're just going to be 
bent double laughing for an hour, you know, in this ridiculous environment where the sole function is to just help people laugh, help people be joyous and feel joy for, mm. for a period of time. But also, you know, there's, there's another aspect to that, you know, um, drag has always been a political statement as well. It's always been a statement against toxic masculinity. It's been a statement against, you know, gay, uh, for, for gay rights and also for um, standing up, you know, just standing up and saying, no, <laughs> no, this isn't happening, not on my watch, you know, and, and if you're, if you're going to try and come for us, yeah, you know, check your lipstick first, because I'm going to come for you as well. So it's always <laughs> been this political statement. Mm. And uh, since, you know, since Star, since, you know, Marsha P. Johnson and the Stonewall riots and, you know, the street transvestite activist rebellion, you know, in New York City, it was drag queens and trans women who, who were at the front of that, you know, and they were the ones who threw the first high heel. <laughs> 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 the first policeman they saw, you know, threw a high heel at it. And, um, and it started this enormous cartwheel, this this snowball of, of gay rights and gay activism. So, so, so yes, yeah, so my drag is certainly a political statement and it's a mm. statement against toxic masculinity for sure. But, but also it's a statement of joy. Mm. And um, yeah. it seems to me it's also a statement of Welshness, you know, because you, it's, do you, do you ever speak in English? Uh, does Maggie, um, sorry, does Maggie Noggy ever speak in English or is she just a Welsh speaker? She's primarily, I'd say 95% of, of her expression is through the medium of Welsh. There's the, there's the odd occasion where she does something in English. So we do have the um, LGBTQ, um, LGBT Cymru. So the Q almost becomes like a C, you know. So right. we've got this organisation, the LGBTQ Cymru. Um, organization and they often have shows which are bilingual mm. so I've I've uh, Maggie's performed at some of those so the shows will be so I might do you know a couple of minutes in Welsh and then move into English but I try and combine them as well so so that it it kind of flows seamlessly th through the performance and um so so yeah but pr predominantly she, she's Welsh so she has her own television series we've we, wow. we're, well we were supposed to do season three but COVID happened. And um, mm. so we'll do season three at some point or another, I guess, you know, when things settle. And um, so, so yeah, and, and, a part, and of course, a part of that is just work. You know, part of that is, that's how I earn a living. You know, I, mm. I work for the coroner part-time now and I work for Welsh television part-time. And, um, and then somewhere in there, I'm also a writer. And it's a diverse life you've got it's isn't it? crazy <laughs> people don't believe me when I tell them <laughs> they kind of go that can't be true and someone will say well, it is he's <laughs> a drag queen who's a druid who works in a morgue <laughs> people say you can't make that shit up <laughs> yeah well they'll make you tell they'll tell stories of you in the future and people say no it could never be true <laughs> that was just all it was a fantastical <laughs> But it's quite true. But but I, but I love that. I still love that aspect as well. So you know, and um, but also I'm quite coercive when it comes to Maggie Noggy as well because there's a message in her mm. existence. You know, hence hence the name is a play on words on Mabinogi. So she yes. is a mythological being. Um, she is like the spirit of Wales. You know, she's part of the dragon's breath, and um, and she sees Lovely. the world through very rose tinted glasses. That you know, if everybody just tried to be fabulous, then. <laughs> You know, they just wouldn't be bitter and angry. 
that's wonderful. <laughs> she does. She does have a message. I've always, mm. I've always ensured that people understand her message when I do interviews as myself, as an actor. Yeah. And um, for for Welsh television, so she's a joyous part of my life, you know, and um, and she's yeah and I, I love her but but it's it is peculiar because I do feel that she is independent of me she does have her own life mm. she has her own existence outside of my control somehow as well <laughs> it's very it's very peculiar there's a part of me that leaves when she comes forward yeah it feels as if something else arrives and I kind of take a back seat even though sometimes I take a back seat and go oh Maggie don't say that <laughs> yeah <laughs> You're gonna get me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it's... that with Arwen, isn't it? When, when, like all sorts of things that we do with Arwen, that there's a sense of kind of stepping aside to allow it to come through us, isn't there? Yes, yes, very much so. You know, and and also um, cross dressing itself, you know, especially within Celtic cultures, was always a very sacred dance. It was right. always about, uh, you know, um, tearing down the edges and mm. tearing down perception and preventing something from seeing your true form, you know, especially around Kalangayav, you know, around Halloween times, all of that dressing up was to, to prevent something from seeing who you actually were for whatever reason, you know, that you, whatever agenda you had, I guess. Mm. So it's always been a part of, um, and it's certainly been a part of British culture for, well, significantly longer than RuPaul's Drag Race, you know. Mm. It's always been here. It's always been, you know, even the word itself. I mean, some of it is partially subjective, but they think that part of its origin is as a stage direction of who is dressed as the girl because women weren't allowed to act in, you know, Shakespearean times and mm. for that kind of, you know, portion of time. So men would play the roles of women and that the stage direction was D-R-A-G, which was to be dressed as the girl. Oh, and right. They, so that the stage direction became, you know, drag and the meaning yeah. behind drag, you know, not to not to pull something across the surface, but to be dressed as girl as um, stage direction. And the other was that because they had these long, long frocks and that the frocks would drag across the stages. And um, so, yeah, yeah, so it's pr probably from a stage direction. Wasn't that interesting? How, how yeah. do you bring all of the, how do you sort of see them coming together in your life, your three days? Death, dragon, druidry. Well, they're, they're certainly a triangle, and they're a triangle that I think if one corner of the triangle was to fall away, my life would be significantly poorer as a consequence. Mm. You know, and they, my druidry helps me to assimilate the horror that I see in my professional career as, as um, working for the coroner, but also it helps me to help other people within that role you know to help the bereaved and the dead and it helps me to 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 function within that very human responsive environment of profound deep emotion and my drag allows allows me to have a pressure release as well that releases not only the the horror that i'm subjected to but also releases the profundity because you know our being a, a you know a druid and a writer and i'm constantly immersed in the profundity of that and a lot of it is very high brow and studying and i'm always at the bloody library i feel as if i live in the library sometimes mm. well not since covid but you know and um 
so it releases all of that it releases the profundity and it releases the horror and um, for just the duration of whether we're filming or whether I'm performing on a live stage um, I can feel it releasing all of it mm. and it almost feels like a reset like I'm pushing a reset button and then I can go back to my other life then and I feel refreshed you know and but also I found that um you know I, I still work three jobs basically and um but working as Maggie it's it's crazy isn't it that within media within television you're paid significantly more you know I get paid so much more for doing Maggie than I do for you know being subjected to the most horrific of human cruelty and disease and accidents and trauma, you know, and, and it is quite odd really when you think, you know, that we live in that kind of a world that would pay significantly more to a person who's, you know, basically, you know, a tit in a wig for an hour, you know, and to somebody who is dealing with, you know, catastrophes and trauma. But that's the, that's, that's how our society works. So I can work as Maggie, and that buys me time to to be a druid. It buys me the time to sit down and focus on my writing mm. um, because she pays more money. She can keep the roof over my head quicker than well, working in the morgue can, you know? Well, I suppose it's just so valuable for everybody because I, I, I mean, I know that when, you know, you're doing your comedic acts, you're, you're not just letting off steam for yourself. It's for everyone. You know, yes. it's so healing for everybody to to have that. And, um, you know, that's valuable. Yes, you know? that laughter. I mean, yeah. it's such good energy, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's fabulous energy. I'm working next week as, as Maggie and, and I always get really excited. So I've got to be in the morgue for four days and then I go and I get to be Maggie for a couple of days. Mm. And, um, and it is such a release. I, I love that release. And I love how I feel afterwards. I feel because it's creative as well so I'm in the flow of Awen even yeah. when I'm creating comedy or we're filming sketches or singing songs or whatever we're engaged in you're still engaged with Awen you know Awen is such a fundamental principle within the um, Welsh culture it's not just something that belongs to Druids it's here in Wales it's ingrained in every aspect of our culture has mm. Awen within it you know and um and that it, that comes to a huge crescendo every august at the national eisteddfod of wales where where we crown and chair the chief part of the year and they're crowned they're, they're an awen or the, the nord covering as its proper name is um, is placed upon their heads the chair has the three rays carved into it everything around the gossip has the rays upon it mm. and and that's a secular event that's not a spiritual event it's purely secular mm. and just cultural but awen is a part of it it's at its heart mm. how, how is that not spiritual then if uh, how are they thinking about awen if it's not in a spiritual way as as purely cultural, as as purely an aspect of your own creativity. So, I mean, you know, obviously there's the odd one or two of them because some of them have even written bardic material for the Anglesey Druid Order because they, mm. they feel a spirit within it. But that's not its function. Its function is as something that is inherently within the Welsh spirit. It's 
it's it's kamriktod. It's within us to 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 try and find inspiration and to be inspirational. And I guess you can connect to that from a spiritual level or from a purely secular level. Mm. You know that inspiration on a spiritual level is is profoundly wonderful and good. But it's also profoundly wonderful and good on a secular level as well. That mm. if your function is to inspire people, you're doing good in the world. You know, you're mm. you're doing something that is essential to to people's well being. And um, so, but yes, yeah, some of them, some people within that in, within that organization certainly do have a spiritual connection to Awen. But predominantly, the National Eisteddfod of Wales. You know, because like 350,000 people attend mm. it every August. It's televised 24 hours a day. Um, it is purely sec- secular, but mm. the Awen is real for them. It's not just a concept. It's very real. And we crown these bards and they become our national heroes. Literally, they become immortalized. They are idols forever. And um, so whoever gets the crown, whoever gets the chair, are idolized they become mm. our heroes they they almost lose their apparent identity and they become something else in service to us so their role is to be in service to us by proxy of the awen it's beautiful it's yeah. very beautiful amazing and and they're kind of i mean it's fairly inaccessible when we don't speak welsh um i've looked into it a little bit but of course it's it's all welsh language based isn't it and um, yes yeah so culturally that there, there is um um, there is a chasm because there's so so much of its idiosyncrasies are held within the language, mm. and um, I mean I've I've certainly taken non-Welsh speaking people to the National Eisteddfod, and I know of so many Druids who are huge fans, and they'll watch it on TV because mm. you can get it anywhere in the world on television, oh. and. Um, but to be there there, 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 there is something there. There is something, it does have its own spiritual momentum. It does have an inherent quality that is quite numinous and ethereal. Mm. Uh, but of course, to the majority of people who engage with it, it's a huge secular cultural event. So it mm. has its own magic, but it's a different magic from those who are coming or looking at it through pagan eyes. Mm. you know through animistic eyes and uh, but I like that I love that it works on both sides you know it doesn't Mm. matter which camp you're in the Awen is just the Awen yeah inspiration is Mm. yeah and um and so they're they're writing poetry and it's mostly poetry based is it or are there other things music and uh, other things like that there's there's everything from crafts to dancing to choirs to sculpture to oh my word I I mean there's there's a whole week of crazy events but at the heart of it is so that they have different pavilions so these things they it's a movable feast so it moves between south and north wales every year so it'll alternate Mm -hmm. and it depends on you know the towns that petition to have the national eisteddfod because it's a big deal you know Mm. just economically it brings in millions and millions of pounds to to each location and um but at the heart of it one of the pavilion is called a babeslen or the literature pavilion and that's the bardic pavilion and people will queue they will form lines throughout the entire um, Eisteddfod festival ground, which is just enormous. The thing is huge. 
and there's massive cues for that one because that's where the bards are and that's where they perform Kanghanev or Englanyon and these are song spells these are these are powerful elements of our culture that retain the quality of language and that's always the most popular pavilion and then whoever is the best you know eventually that moves to the main pavilion which sits like four or five thousand people and that's where the main ceremony takes place the main ritual and um and it's it's quite astounding to to see and then and then you have an appreciation which i explore in my kiridwen book as well that the the bardic tradition has an oral and an or aural component to it and both are necessary for it to work for the awen to flow so mm. it blows through the bard but there needs to be an aural component to mm. to receive the awen mm. and for for it to be somehow assimilated into experience so that the the people who are listening are also participatory they're not passive they're actively engaged in the in the in the function of bardism they're actively in, engaged in this tumultuous flow of awen and um but of course they they don't necessarily perceive that as a spiritual um quality attribute mm. that it's it's purely cultural but it's powerfully cultural it moves through that that festival field which can be hundreds of acres but at its center you can almost tangibly feel the Pabesh Len holds the awen somehow. It's, What's it's, the Pabesh Len? So Pabesh is pavilion and Len is mutation of Len, which is a shortened version of Lenaviaith, which means um, literature, words. Oh, so, so that's the Bardic pavilion. So that's the Bardic the, pavilion. Right, right. Yeah, a Pabesh awesome. Len. Yeah, and that is the cauldron essentially. Mm. It's just held there, and I love it. You know, it's it's um it's a it's a we miss it so much because yeah, there yeah. wasn't one last year and there isn't one this year. Um, we're filming, which is why I'm working next week. We're filming some stuff for a televised version. Oh, good. Um, does Mabinogi to... perform in the? Or do you she does, perform? Yeah. Oh, she does. She does. Oh, good. So I tend to go to the Eisteddfod as a druid to give presentations and workshops and you know that stuff. Oh, so um, they so they have a bit of druid stuff in there as well. Oh yes, 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 oh, yes. They certainly acknowledge they they oh yes since since two thousand and twelve two thousand and twelve was the the turning point, and where they kind of said oh um, we need to do something about these other druids. So <laughs> isn't that great? And, yeah. It's quite fab. So I, I go there as a druid and I go there as an entertainer, as an actor as well. So and what yeah, are the good. what are the what's the relationship like between the druidry community and the Eisteddfod community? Um Do it's so it's it's rather limited here in Wales because predominantly we are well I think we are the we're the only druid order in Wales. Right. So we're the main focus of pagan druidry in Wales and whilst mm -hmm. you know there's plenty of druids that live in Wales and quite a lot of those are also members of the Anglesey Druid Order but there are no other established groups and orders within Wales that mm. function as um, neo-pagan druids. Mm. So our relationship with the Gorset of Bads has become a really nice um, harmonious relationship. There's, there's, a, there's an admiration that they have learnt from being in relationship with us. So one of the chief bards, his name's Guion, ironically. Mm. And um, 
or magically or wonderfully mm. and <laughs> you know it, he is one of the chief bads so he is literally one of our heroes um i have a really beautiful relationship with him and he um, he's working with me at the moment for a new television program that focuses just on druidry and um, in the welsh language so but their relationship in the 90s and the 80s was a little was a little taxing and a little peculiar so the welsh druids had no understanding of the english druids and the english druids had no understanding of the welsh druids yeah. and all because of language right. they just didn't get one another and mm. no concept of like oh you know, and the nationalized Stedvod Druids accused the English Druids of just being pot smoking hippies that hang out at Stonehenge. You know, and that was one of the comments from one of the Arch Druids in the 90s. Yeah. And, um, and then England could never quite figure out why Her Majesty the Queen and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, they were initiated as Druids into the goddess of the Bards. So they don't understand it. They're like, oh my God, the Archbishop of Canterbury is engaged in a pagan ritual. Mm, but it's not a no. pagan ritual. Yeah, it's just cultural. So somebody had to bridge that. And, you know, and we've attempted as much as humanly possible to be some of those bridges and to try and have conversations and just to open channels of dialogue as well. And as soon as they realised that English-speaking Druids or the English-speaking Druidic world and the Welsh Druid world have a common origin, they all have a common birth, and that birth is 1792 when a crazy man who was stoned <laughs> up his head on Laudanum, you know, <laughs> who placed 12 stones on Primrose Hill in London, not Cardiff, London, yeah. you know, <laughs> and proclaimed. And that was the inspiration for modern Druidry. Yeah. Um, and and in so some ways all... he influenced the Asifid as well, right? Or the, the oh, totally, yeah, totally, yeah. His yeah. his his fingerprint is firmly on it, indisputably <laughs> firmly on it. So all of the rituals were designed by Yola Morganog predominantly. So they express his theology and his wisdom. So and of course because we have that common birth, that common origin, yeah, um, we we then have something in common, yeah. And that the divergence, you know, the, the, the journeys that we talk um, only make us different and more colourful and vibrant, but we still have this common birth. We have a single father and, and when we honour him, it makes the relationship better between us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. That's awesome that there's that. I, I didn't realise that those relationships had been developing. It's really cool. Yes, but you know, it's really new. When you think 2012, 2012 yeah. was the first the first movement. But fabulously, and and I had a suspicion as well, because we were told a year prior to 2012 that the next Arch Druid they stand in office for four years. And the Arch Druid in 2012 was a woman. You know, so she was the first female Arch Druid in recorded history. And I thought, oh, things are gonna change. And they changed. <laughs> Yeah. You know, sometimes you just need that, you know, you just need something that goes in and goes snap and just yeah. breaks the 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 status quo. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. she did. That's Her name great. is Christine. Good on and you, Christine. She <laughs> yeah, she broke she broke the mold. And things have changed. And I think she was a catalyst, you know, energetically for some form of change. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, it'd be so amazing to go and do a pilgrimage and see all these places and experience all these things. Yes, yes. Come and participate in the ancient Druid ritual of afternoon tea. Oh, yes. 
yeah. Um, do you have a favorite story aside from the, or is the Caridwin story your favorite? Do you have other ones? Um, Shinavan Vach is my favorite. What's that one? Oh, that's the one about the bread. Is it? Yes. Yeah. 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 Hard baked is your bread. It is not easy to catch me. Um, yeah. It's Llinavan Bach is my, my favorite story. I just love that, you know, our entire tradition of medicine um, comes from a fairy woman who yeah. came out of a lake and brought a herd of cows and sheep and pigs with her. And <laughs> I, I love that. You know? And oh, I just yep. love I and peculiarly we have a version of that story so you know how some of these stories have a physical location but so many of our stories also have regional variations that mm. also have a location so Llinavan Vach is based in the Brecon Beacons down towards South Wales but mm. in Snowdonia we have a lake called Llinaduyarchen um, the lake of what would that be in English the lake of the floating island or something like that and that also has an, an, a story that is exactly the same. Oh. And it's focused on this island that floats in this lake because the, the, the levels change because of you know, flood waters and it appears that the island moves, which it doesn't. It's just the levels of the water. Mm. But, um, but I love that story because I was made familiar with it because of Llinaduyarchen. And then I realized that nationally, we also had a much larger story where her sons would go and sit down by the lakeside. She would come out of the water and she would take them through the country lanes of Aberhomvi, you know, of the Brecon Beacons, and she'd teach them all about the herbs. And, and then they became, you know, the, the first medical practitioners, official, you know, recognised medical practitioners of Wales. Mm. And their work is still being studied by modern medicine because it's astounding how so much of the material is actually relevant in modern medicine today. Mm. And it was given to, to them, given to the nation by, by a fairy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but there was actually a real family and a real tradition that related to that. Oh yes, the, yes, yeah. The, the, yeah. The family are quite real. They still exist. They still have a. There's still a centre in the village of Madhvai, beautiful, where they still practice herbalism. They still, you know, sell beautiful herbal products and all gleaned and gathered from that locality. So I'm going there actually a week on Saturday. So I'm going to Madhvai to the Madhvai mm. physicians, the physicians of Madhvai Centre, and um, and I I just love it. I love that we still have that continuation and that sense of permanence and the, and a relationship to the land you know well yes Keridwen went around the land and she gathered herbs and resins and fruits and berries for her cauldron but we also have this tradition of betterment of wellness of holisticness that comes from a relationship with something that was other that was made apparent and caused a bunch of people to deeply connect with the landscape Mm. to find the things within the landscape that would help heal their communities. I love that. I love the levels within these stories that are so varied, so diverse, and so indicative of sacred relationships. Mm. Yeah. And do you, do you feel that it's sort of like, what, what is the story really telling us that, that there were people who, who sort of intuitively, like the fairy woman sort of represents like a, a meditative encounter or something that we can, work out the the medicinal qualities of things intuitively is that is that sort of what it's saying do you think what is it about yes 
Yes, yes. But you, basically, you've hit the nail on the head. This, there's so, so the elements of the, the Lady of the Lake herself is the liminal quality held within that particular tale. And it's that liminality and the sense of magic and the sense of otherness that causes her children to see the world in very different ways. When we look at her husband, the one who ultimately gave her three strikes, you see the cold edge of humanity. You see the, mm. the moral standards and the social behaviors and the obligations and the duties that we feel to this false thing that we've created, you know, society. And, and yet throughout that, you have this creature that defies all of those norms, that stands up and laughs at them. You know, she laughs at the funeral and he's like, why are you laughing? So because she's free, can't you see that she has now gone back to the plant? She's gone back to the, to the song of the land, you know, and you should celebrate that, but it was against the norm. So uh, every turn, the lady of the lake is telling us the norms can also prevent you from seeing the other that is hid within the very land itself. So she teaches her children who don't have the same biases as her as, her, as their father mm. to see the magical quality within nature, to, to create relationships that are different to that very, um, you know, everything being based on social norms and standard accepted behavior which would tell you that there's no such thing as fairies who live in lakes. There's no such things as spirits within plants. And she was constantly telling her, her children, but there is, mm. it's there. You just need to look for it and shift your perspective and your vision slightly to left or right and you'll see it. So, so I, I, I love that juxtaposition that you have between this guy who's desperately trying to be the best Presbyterian father he could ever be, you know, <laughs> and, um, and he just fails miserably at it all. And yet his children, ultimately, they don't lose their mother. He, he just loses the magic of this relationship he had with his wife. Um, the children don't miss out. They still have a relationship with their mum, you know, and she teaches them mm. all they need to know to become these amazing um, physicians. And I, and I love that, I love that, that that's what it's telling us. You know, there's this, this liminality that's hid within the tale. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, and that, that was the story that you used for that ritual that you did with us in, with, with Dave and Kerry in South Australia for the Druid camps. That's right, wasn't it? He was, yeah, yeah, my favorite. Yeah. yeah, that was so great. I really loved that. Yeah, it's always my favorite. Yeah. But it's, it's the one I remember the most as a child as well, I think. I mean, you know, I remember all the others as well, but you know how some of them just like, oh, ooh, they, they really resonate somehow. The story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Loved that story. Yeah. And, and are there stories that are specific to Anglesey? Yes, yes, we have, we have, oh gosh, we have so many. I mean, even some of the, the Mabinogi stories happened here on Anglesey. So the story yeah. of Branwen and Bran that happened oh. here. So their city, I can walk to it just from my house. It's just sort of down the road in the current modern day village of Aberfrau. Yeah. So we have so much of Branwen's mythology that is centered right here in this corner of Anglesey where I now live. And, you know, her, her, the bird that is sacred to her, the Dridwen, the starling, uh, here in their tens of thousands. You know, so, so they've mm. obviously always found roost and nesting places in this part of the island because they're constantly, you know, um, 
what do they call that thing in English? What do they call it? The murmurations. They're constantly murmurating. Is that when they and move around in a cloud? Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, I didn't know that word. Yeah, mur- so it's called a murmuration exaltation. Yeah. And, um, wow. But in the vernacular, so in the local um, legends, they the reason they're doing that is they're trying to find Branwen. Oh. And they can't find her. It's as if they've, they've not realised that she died. So they're constantly trying to find her. So even that is recorded here. Mm. It's just a part of our vernacular um, folklore that they're trying to find Branwen. So we have loads, we have so many myths and legends on, on Anglesey. And then as you cross onto the mainland, there's just even more because the mountains hold so many. So it's just lovely. I, I love living in, in a, a mythological landscape. So, mm. so from, from the south, so from my office window here, we look out over the, over the sea. So from my upstairs window, I can see Caer Aranrod or you know, the fort of Aranrod. So that connects me to the fourth branch and to Gwydion and Aranrod and Dawn and Math. And then I can see the kingdom of Gwynedd where my mum lives. So, so wherever we, wherever I walk, I feel as if I'm walking within a, you know, a, a powerful, beautiful mythological landscape where those voices are constantly singing. Mm. And when I'm not here, I miss it profoundly. Yeah. So, so there's lots of locations that in you, and you know, like that location is this part of that story and this, can, can you sort of walk a story there? Yes, yes, very easily. So, yeah. and and we we do that as well as part of some of the um, the the walking pilgrimages that we do within the Anglesey Druid Order as well. So we'll have we call them our deity days. So we'll walk the myths, we'll walk the legends. Right. So and the the one that we did before the pandemic struck was for Manawidan. So Manawidan is in, you know, he's in the second branch briefly and he's mostly in the third branch. So there's elements of that particular mythology that you can walk. So, yeah, it's great to engage with landscape on that level as well. Yeah. You know? Also just be, be out and not, not in a classroom, yeah. you know, not just engaged in ritual, but just engaged with the, the natural landscape and taking a few hours, you know, out to just walk it and be with it. Yeah, um, I'm reminded again of conversations I've had with my Aboriginal friends um, who were saying something very similar that we need to get people out of the classrooms and 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 so sort of like seeing the the land itself as a university of sorts where the yes. the stories held within those places and the yes. the amount of information that you get by telling the story in the place where all of the parts of the story come alive around you is just yes. it works on our our ability to learn in an emotional way that just you know learning things from a book is just never going to compete with no it's, never yeah no. And that, that, that's precisely the reason why we go to bala and why we 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 do the keridwen taliesin pilgrimage you know over several days mm. so that you're not just there for an hour you're there for days, yeah. you know, completely immersed in that landscape and singing the songs of that land of that landscape, and it does it. It profoundly affects you on a level that is so very different to going to a conference or going to a camp, which are amazing, but those are essentially facets of our community and our communal expression. Mm. 
And but I don't think that they should solely be the things upon which we're reliant for profound spiritual connection. They're communal connections. The spiritual connection, I believe, comes from walking the land and being in communion with it and singing its songs and touching it mm. and putting your fingers in its soil. And um, but of course, they should work in tandem as well. You know that they that there's a that, that, that they're moderated somehow. That we moderate what we do as people together and in classrooms as to what we do out there. Oh yeah, for sure. Sort of well, doing a yeah. bit of both is good, isn't it? Yeah, finding yeah. that balance, which can be difficult, I think, mm. for a lot of people as well to find that balance. But but we certainly, as an order, try and facilitate that balance as much mm. as we can facilitate mm. a sense of connection to place you know because we're here you know this is our landscape this is what we're immersed within and um it's like why would you not want to share that you know i would love just, to hear you have a conversation with some of my aboriginal friends <laughs> yes that was, so would i <laughs> that would be so interesting well, i'm gonna have to work that out somehow <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, hopefully we can come back to Australia at some point. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. One of my, one of my friends is it lives locally, and he's he's Aboriginal, but he also has Welsh an- ancestry, and he's quite interested. No and, way, really. Yeah. So yeah, That's amazing. Yeah. So I totally. <laughs> oh, wow. Got to get you guys introduced oh, so that word. you can have a chat. But he's like a a song keeper, and he runs the corroborees and stuff, and. Yeah, yeah he wants, but he wants to come to Wales and he's like, you know, he wants to learn about the stories there and stuff. And yeah, 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 yeah. find this connection. Oh, so, it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, yes, yeah, yeah, you can come. We've got a caravan in the yard. You can stay there. <laughs> we always have a little guest guest room in the garden. Yeah, I've got to introduce you. It'll be awesome. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, and hopefully you'll be able to come out and see us again soon. Yes, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. It was it was nice during the the first and second wave of the pandemic that I d- didn't go anywhere actually because my life has been a little crazy the last ten years. Mm. Um, it was nice just to be at home, yeah. just to just to be within this land without feeling I had to go somewhere else. But but now I'm starting to miss it as well. I'm starting to miss those connections, you know, because within those connections you you feel the awen flowing yeah and i I miss that i think that's something that really brings us into presence about travel experiencing something really new and different and why why pilgrimage is so powerful as well yes yes Mm. and we're hoping to do more of that you know and because the pandemic has certainly taught us that we, we could do with engaging more with pilgrimage. So mm. we're going to look at ways in which we can do significantly longer pilgrimage routes as well that connect various points in Wales with one another and, um, and move along new storylines, you know. Well, not new storylines, but new in a, in, a, in a way that we might pilgrimage to them. Yeah. What, connecting so, up so, locations in new ways? 
Zoe? Yes, yes. Yeah. So there's there's various things like here on Anglesey, there's the place where Branwen and her family lived, but then there's also the place where she died mm. and and her grave. Well, they're they're like 14 miles apart, you know, but mm. there are various things along that route that also connect that tale to itself and also connect elements of that tale to the landscape and to other mythologies and other legends. Mm. And the same is true on the mainland. There's the point where Keridwen boiled her cauldron and the place where Taliesin was birthed, which is 30, 35 miles away, mm. you know, and crosses the Berwyn Mountains. And there's so much scope for prolonged endurance pilgrimage. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, over mountainous terrains, and with, which. And with rituals and sharing songs and stories along the way. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And because our public rights of way and our public footpaths here are so good in yeah. Wales, so many routes that we could take where we'd be engaging with other legends and other stories along the way. And some of them do tie in, you know, but it would be it would be good. So it, we're, we've certainly got that in mind. Wonderful. I'm, I'm making like the biggest plan for all the things that I'm going to do when they let me out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but at the same time, like, you know, working on our local areas is so, is really fascinating and getting deeper into the places that yes. we're in. Yeah. That is important beautiful. as well, isn't it? Yeah. Because sometimes, sometimes we, we, sometimes we can easily neglect our localities mm. and, so much we can do so much within our own square miles our square miles are important and if this pandemic has taught me anything it's the it's the the value of my square mile you know mm. and and the message that comes from your square mile as well we can be so overwhelmed by what happens on a global scale that we feel so helpless that we can't do anything to help but by affecting influencing and inspiring your square mile you are helping yeah you know, you're totally. creating webs of inspiration and webs of influence and networks so one square mile touches another and we can we can affect the world we can inspire the world on so many ways by just working locally and then we're not as overwhelmed because I find that overwhelming quite disarming and very disempowering mm. when one becomes so overwhelmed you can't do anything and then you don't do anything you know to try and help but yeah square miles are important yeah it felt like we all got shrunk in really small and and we've just really gradually been able to expand out and and some yeah. of us more than others but yeah like finding that center around yourself yeah, yeah. it's been everything yeah, this, it has been fabulous mm. oh, it has mm. <laughs> well that's nearly <laughs> two hours now <laughs> oh my god's alive <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> it's awesome. It's been such a great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been lovely. It's so nice to see. It's just, it's, I've, I've loved this medium, actually, of just being able to connect and chat with people from all over the world, you know, and I've had yeah. some little cocktail parties just sitting here in my office with people in America and Europe. And also I speak to Nick, you know, I, I video call with, Nick in Australia fairly yeah. often because I stayed with Nick when I was down there so we still chat and and, and that's lovely because you're still you still feel that you're connected to to those people that you know you shared amazing special times with so yeah, yeah it's been good awesome yeah I feel I feel like I've, I've learned so much about well there, there were so many things that I was curious about 
and it's been really interesting to talk to you especially after learning this stuff about aboriginal things so it's it's like because like for me living here and doing druidry as an english-born person there's this need to look at indigenous cultures not just where we are but also yeah. where our druidry comes from and yes. you know that's you know you're coming so much from within that you know to speak to you about it after learning about aboriginal culture and sort of making the comparisons between the two has been really fascinating um yeah and that's yeah. what they're the points, and they're they're the junctions where bridges can be built. Yeah, you know, and yeah. I think as druids, you know, we we're always tasked to, you know, as Bran said, you know, Bran said, um, our pen bid bont," you know, let him who be a leader be a bridge. You know? mm, and that druids have a responsibility to be bridges, you know, mm. to be bridges between differences between uh, between myths between peoples between traditions we can we can be bridges and that certainly sounds like what you know what you're doing down there is taking those two elements of yourself and finding ways to bridge them and that's beautiful yeah I think yeah sorry bridges bridges are important Mm. yeah it's like friendship and just conversations and yeah it's where it's all at And it's so yeah, nice yeah. that I can just give you a call and just say, hey, yeah. <laughs> so there the other is, side of the world and have a chat. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and there was no lag. <laughs> no. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> oh, thanks, Julie. It's been nice to see you. I should have worn your lovely, your lovely, well, my Julie, as I call it. <laughs> no, but I'm still, I'm, I'm still wearing my hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop this recording, yeah?